Hi, my name's Denise McDougall. Welcome to this episode of Life Beyond Our Wildest Dreams, a recovery podcast. It is a podcast where we have we discuss recovery. The podcast, we don't endorse any specific recovery processes and the opinions are strictly those of our guests. Today, our guest is 2017 award-winning author of Raising the Bottom and Making Mindful Choices in, drinking, in a Drinking Culture, Lisa Boucher. Lisa has a wide variety of life experiences from bar training, airline stewardess, registered nurse, public speaker, an advocate with the medical profession on alcoholism in the fa- as a family disease. Lisa currently resides in Ohio with her husband of 35 years, and she is a mother of twin sons and a grandmother. Raising the bottom is about not having to hit rock bottom, bottom before, re- before entering recovery. And a useful book about how to be more mindful of how, how we navigate this disease in a drinking culture. So without any further delay, I want to welcome you, Lisa, to the podcast. Thank you, Denise. Thanks for having me. No problem at all. And I'm sorry for the rough start there. Sometimes no, that's it does okay. happen. You got it figured out. That's all that matters. That's right. And um, I'm really, really happy to be speaking with you today. I'm kind of laughing because my setup here is a lot different. Um, I got to see one time your desk in your beautiful chair, and here I am in a, a in a little small area. And uh, I'm just glad we can connect. And I really, um, as you know, the podcast is a little bit different in the fact that we discuss what we're doing in recovery now. And, um, you know, you've been sober 32 years and you've had such an extensive um, experience in recovery. And so I think the listeners are really going to benefit from the things you've been able to achieve in recovery. But why don't we start off a little bit, of course, you know, I want people to know about the book and the book I think is really unique because it does really speak to women in recovery and the stigma with women in recovery. And I think what makes the book different is the fact that you know, you talk about you don't have to hit rock, rock bottom. You know, everyone's idea of the alcoholic or alcoholic, you know, person, never mind woman, is someone on Skid Row drinking out of a paper bag. And, you know, you really put a shine a light on the fact of the importance of the family disease and also that, you know, there's people just different props, you know, behind their large houses, housewives, homemakers who are all drinking. They've got two cars, two kids, a husband, a job, and they're not at that rock bottom. But still, I think sometimes that makes alcoholism a little bit harder to identify. So why don't you let everybody give a little bit um, of explanation about the book I know your mother was a great incentive for you to read the book or to write the book. And why don't you just give a little bit of history on what led you into recovery the day that you were sick and tired of being sick and tired? What was different that day? And then give us a little bit about the book. All right. Well, hi, everyone. Um, So I think it does start like my mother's story is intimately entwined with mine because she hit a very low bottom, the quintessential picture that you would picture in your mind when you do think of an alcoholic. Now, keep in mind that my mother was a registered nurse and um, we were living in a middle class, maybe a little bit upper middle class 
environment, but nothing special. And her disease literally took her down to where I would come home from school. My two older sisters had gone off to college and literally I'd find her passed out in any number of places, the garden, under the dining room table, in various stages of undress. Um, it, it was just terrible where her disease took her. And it was not for lack of trying to get help. I do remember my father taking her to all sorts of places such as the Cleveland Clinic and notable psychiatrists and therapists and whatnot. But back then they didn't, nobody ever for 25 years, nobody ever said you have a drinking problem. So she had to fall down the steps and break her neck to get into recovery. So I gave a little spoiler away there in the book. But um, so when my drinking started to escalate, my mother at the time had seven years sober and I'm in my late twenties and I'm drinking and ripping and roaring and I don't have any children yet. I'm married to a professional and our life seems very normal again, like you were saying earlier, Denise, from the outside, you know, we just bought our first home. We're both employed. I'm working in advertising and marketing at the time. And my life pretty much is work. And then after work, go have drinks or go to dinner or go out or sort of, you know, anything like that. So nobody ever really thought it was a problem and you can get away with a lot of drinking in your 20s. So there was that, but my mother, God bless her, you know, I I, I always am confused about this Al-Anon stuff because I did get into Al-Anon as well because there's so much alcoholism in my family with siblings and previous spouse and I worry about my kids and I could go on and on, but I've always been around. I said, I'm like a tea bag. I've been steeped in this alcoholism from a young child you know i love how you put it in the book i think you say something to the effect of you've been immersed with alcoholism from basically day one yeah from my so true and it's it's exhausting it's frustrating and then there are exhilarating moments when we find recovery and we can help others but you know for me it was my mother chirping in my ear not relentlessly, but she was helpful in saying, you know, Lisa, I think you're drinking too much. And so I'm looking at my life and, you know, I'm in my late twenties, like I said, and I, I had been in college for 10 years. I hadn't finished my degree and my friends are starting to move on with their lives. And all of these things that I, I believe God or my higher power, whatever it is that you believe gave me the miracle of being honest with myself, because that is what got me into recovery earlier. I do believe I had another 15 or 20 years of hard drinking that I could have done. And I would have had more failed marriages and probably my kids would have been a hot mess and I would have raised them very differently. And all of those things could have been there. And I still could have kept denying the drinking. I do believe that in the marrow of my bones. But I just, you know, after seeing my mom hit this low bottom, I knew my drinking was escalating. And so really what got me into recovery, it was like a week of telling myself if I, you know, we make those little lines for ourselves. If I do this, then I have a problem. <laughs> so actually I stuck to it. So I said, okay, there were, this is one 
very pivotal moment. I need to share this. So I'm working downtown, like I said, in advertising and marketing, and I kind of had a home bar and it was two blocks away. And I was going to that bar at lunch and I noticed the progression. I started off having a beer or a glass of wine and pretty soon I'm getting blitzed and going back to my office and closing the door and taking a nap. So I saw the progression. And like I said, had my mother not shared some knowledge about the disease, I don't know that I would have noticed this. Hmm. But there was that. And there was me one day leaving my office. I was craving a drink. I went over and I'm pulling on the handle and I'm apoplectic that I, it's not open. And I'm like that sheer panic. And I look at my watch and it's 10 a.m. And I went, oh my God. So that bothered me greatly. And then, cause I always said, oh, I don't drink in the morning, you know, all those things. Drink before noon. Right. I mean, you know, it was just, it was kind of a slap in the face. Like that's not normal behavior. I knew in my gut, this just normal people, normal drinkers are not rapidly shaking the bar door. You know, exactly. Having this panic come over them, wash over them when they can't get in. Yeah. So that happened. And then I was fine. Now it was months later, I get fired from that job and I'm home. And, um, I remember telling myself, okay, if I ever get drunk when I don't mean to get drunk, this would be <laughs> fine. If I ever drink more than I intend to drink, that'll be a sign. And honestly, Denise, there was one more and I can't remember, but within a week, all of those happened. They all I happened. This, I was on this mini bike that my husband's brother had passed. And so we inherited this little motorcycle and we didn't live too far from this beer drive through. And I apparently went there many, many times in one particular day. And I remember the guy at the beer drive through going, lady, why don't you just buy a 12 pack? <laughs> and I was like, I'm not going to, I was like appalled that he would suggest that because of course I'm on a motorcycle, no helmet, of course, light in each pocket. And um, I go home and I walk in the door and the wastebasket literally is cascading with beer cans. And that was, that hit me hard. And I remember wrapping that up and taking it out to the dumpster. I was so embarrassed and, and I saw it and I just knew. So it was that week between the beer drive through guy, seeing the things, remembering when I was pulling on that door, because I think that kind of got the wheels churning between my mother pulling on the door, you know, and I just knew that. And my husband, I don't know, a few weeks before whatever had said, you know, I don't know what's going on with you, Lisa, but you need to get yourself together. And, um, and it's so interesting, don't you think that when we're done, we're done. And when, when we are done, whatever point that is, all those things happen in a short period of time. Yeah, I think it was just, you know, I feel like we know intuitively that we need to be done, but we just don't ever want to. And I just knew. And then, so my mother was in a 12-step program. She suggested I go. And I do need to tell you this. So I went religiously for 90 days. And that's all I did, though. 
And I remember at the end of one of the meetings, I thought, I'm done with this nonsense and I'm going to go get drunk. And that's exactly what I did. And I went across the street to the bar and then I went to the, I loved, used to love beer drive throughs And so I went to the drive through and whatever that one day, you know, I didn't drink any more than I would typically drink, but I got so commode hugging sick. And then the next day I went back and, you know, there's a line that women alcoholics are often gone beyond recall in a few years, something yeah. to that effect. I believe it's on page 33. Yeah. And that, that did it for me because I finally heard that and I remembered my mother and my mother, I cannot tell you what a hot mess this woman was. Her liver was shot. She looked like she was nine months pregnant. She would be slurring her words, falling down, the car crashes. You know, as a child, there was a lot of trauma there with just car crashes. Like, I really am scared to be in a car with people because we were traumatized. All of my siblings, we all like tell our spouses, move over, I'm driving because we were traumatized with her, you know, swiping. Wow mailboxes going into ditches. I mean, it was a constant thing. It was constant crashing. She's my dad used to put these two, uh, two by fours in the garage to support the wall. Cause she had crashed through it so many oh, times. No. And, <laughs> and how old was she when she sobered up? She was 48 when she got sober. And she was and she, sober 30 years, wasn't she? She was there? when she passed, yes. And she went, I mean, I remember she was so sick that she couldn't even hold a pen, kind of sick. And she had that big halo contraption where they have to drill into her, your head, you know, that because of her broken neck. So this woman was literally broken. And I think a couple of things you said that's really important is, first of all, her age she's 40 years old okay in the time that she sobered up there still were not a lot of women no in the program no. and you know I sobered up in 1983 I was very very few women as well but the other thing is that I think is there was more stigma there were no women and as you've also talked about in the book, a lot of medical knowledge that was is not there. So, you know, in my time, even with myself, they try to shuffle most of the women either into the psych ward or send us right to Al-Anon because women couldn't be alcoholics. And if you were young, you couldn't be an alcoholic. And, you know, so she must have really been up against a lot. She was. And Denise, she was in the psych ward. I mean, I remember my birthday's New Year's Eve, and that's where we spent one Year's Eve was going up to see my mother. And, you know, she got addicted to Valium when that was the their first, the big pharma's first billion dollar drug. And that is what started her ball rolling. And it was by a doctor, you know, and of course she's got this crazy Italian husband, these four kids, and she has no coping skills. And so she starts on Valium and that started the ball rolling. But you know what, Denise, here's what's really, really sad. There is not much that has changed in the medical community. And that could be a whole separate podcast because what I see is exactly what happened to my mother. And I see it happening to people, you know, they come in droves, suicidal, depressed, all of this stuff. And you look at their charts and here's what they have trauma histories, many, not all, 
but many. Um, they medicate them. They give them so much medicine. They can't grasp recovery if they wanted to. And lots of times recovery isn't even offered. I've been with my partner in emergency many times and I've had the occasion where it's been on a weekend. I've been there where the so-called, um, you know, and I'm not like, tr I'm not trying to talk negatively about them. I'm just stating the fact as I see it. a team yeah. of them come in. I've heard them say to the person, well, do you, you know, do you think you want to quit drinking? The person says no. And they leave. Right, right. And then oh, that's yeah. it. And I just want to pull the curtain open. And meanwhile, you know, they're telling them because you can hear, they're telling them you've got liver disease, you know, this and this and this. But they're asking the person who is in the depths of their illness, you know, do you want help? Of course, you're, they're going to say no. Do you want to quit drinking? They're going to say no. But then nothing else is really offered. And the funny thing about the Valium, I related to that in the story as well is I have ADHD. And so of course, in the 60s, 70s, again, what you're saying, whether it's alcoholism or other things, they did not know what to do. And at the age of eight, I'm on Valium. Oh I really God. think that being addicted wow. to Valium at a young age really did, you know, was a gateway and did really play a part into the other addiction. Oh, there's and, no doubt, no doubt, no doubt. So the connection, like you said, is very, very, there's just such a big gap. Well, there the medical is, piece. I, I think, you know, here's what, I used to have to sit in treatment team and listen to these psychiatrists and you just, you do, you want to just smack them because there's, there's a couple problems. Number one, they truly don't understand alcoholism. Because I would hear them say things, for instance, well, this person used to be an alcoholic, but they haven't drank for a while. So we'll go ahead and we'll get, we'll give them Ativan for their anxiety. And then they go on and then they list five other medicines. So right there, that tells me. And not to interrupt one. you, Lisa, but you know, that's a really good point too, because the whole thing that plays into alcoholism is the anxiety piece as well. And that's what they gave me the drugs for was the ADHD and the anxiety. But then, you know, everything's getting treated separately right. or things are getting missed out and the whole thing isn't getting treated. So that's a really good point, what right. you're saying. And I just want to clarify for the listeners as well, if I can, are you still a practicing nurse? I am. I am. Okay. I wasn't sure if you were retired or not. Okay. Yeah, so no. carry on, please. Yes. Yeah, so no, that is one reason why I want to stay in healthcare because I like to see what's going on. I and when I make a difference and it does, it makes it relevant. So I'm not talking to you about stuff that I was seeing 10 years ago. This is stuff I'm seeing like yesterday or the day before, you know, I mean, I'll work a couple days a week. So yeah, I'm not full-time by any stretch, but I do see it. And it's just very, very sad. And, you know, they start like, I used to work with children in the psych ward and with the Concerta and the ADH meds. I'm not so sure that all those kids need that medication because when you look at their home environment, no wonder these children are having behavioral issues and they can't focus. And, you know, a lot of them are being traumatized at home or there's a lot of chaos at home. So again, they're not looking at the whole picture. They're treating and the medication. And the medication is just masking it all. Like you say, they're not getting into 
the family issue. They're not getting into environment. They're not getting into what's really going on, trauma. I feel like we create addicts. I really do. Those children, it's almost like saying, I know these kids are going to be addicted and we see them. I mean, I've been in nursing a long time and we do see them come back as adults and they are addicted. And it started with all the medication and the ADH meds that are amphetamine that they're getting at a young age. So it is really awful. Some of the things that I see and the lack of the hubris with a lot of the doctors, they have no will to learn. They really don't. There's that hubris. I'm a, I'm a doctor. Don't tell me anything. I know what I'm doing. And my nephew just married a beautiful young doctor. She is in her second year of residency. And so I just asked her, I said, Jessica, what did you guys learn about addiction? And she said, we had one elective um, class or like a conference, you know, where you could go yeah. one day and, and learn. That's it. That's I think shameful. it's ours. That's shameful. Shameful. Ours. And mm-hmm. I mean, we're in a society, like you said, that is really full of the drinking culture. And I really like the part in the book as well, where you just you talk about, you know, the drinking culture and the fact that you can't even go to children's birthday parties without there's more alcohol than there is cupcakes and balloons. And I mean, that's mm-hmm. just the just how we live. And so I think it's really good that you have that ability to still have your hand in the medical you you know, you have the ability to educate people from your own experience, but also just from what you know, on alcoholism, and that it's not just alcoholism doesn't just create itself it comes from the family it comes from environment it comes from everything so I definitely definitely think that this book is is just an excellent book for women in recovery women who know somebody in recovery and you know there's not that, that that many specific books specifically for women so I think it's really a story about a woman in recovery, your mother, yourself, and any woman in recovery. So well, uh, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I, I wanted to like let your listeners know too that I wrote Raising the Bottom because so many of the books that were out there were the low bottoms. And so I wanted to portray women who were still functioning. And so like you were saying, I have moms and doctors and nurses and people that were still working what we refer to kind of as high functioning exactly if there's actually high functioning i mean there is there's a line but still people that are able to uh you know work and function completely i mean they're not functioning mentally emotionally and spiritually and on all those levels and eventually physically they're not but they can really pull it off for a long time Well, that's true. And 80%, here is a stat, 80% of alcoholics have jobs and have families. Yeah. And the only people that, you know, the doctors or the news media, they focus on those people that are getting arrested on the six o'clock news. So that's what people think an alcoholic has to look like. No. And we only ever hear about the 20%, right? Right. Exactly. So I think it's great that, I mean, the book is definitely, um, you know, it touches all of those things. And I think it gives, it gives a a hope to that spectrum of people too, that are 
thinking to themselves, well, I've got the two cars, I've got the house, I've got this, I've got that, I can't possibly have a problem. So it kind of opens the door for people to explore the fact that, you know, everything isn't as it looks like. I mean, with alcoholism, we can look great, anxiety, we can look great on the outside, but we're dying on the inside. So this book kind of in a way gives them permission to explore that there's more wrong. Well, I think knowledge, you know, even if it plants a seed for some to understand what alcoholism can look like, because I wanted to share that because like you were saying, I think so many people only understand what it looks like in the 20%, but not the 80% that are just making it through life. They're working, they're ferrying their kids around. But, you know, when my sons played sports all through, I mean, the drinking at the sporting events with the kids and that it's like parents now make everything about the parent party and everything is a party. Everything is about the parent party. And these kids are around so much alcohol from the time they're little kids. And then parents wonder why their kids start drinking at 13 and 14. And we see that when we go into recovery, because you see people coming in trying to dance around you know doing the dance with the alcohol even though they're sober trying to keep a step away from where these things are going on till they get solid and steady themselves and there's a lot of places they can't go to and a lot of places they you know have challenges with to navigate it because it's everywhere and I mean we're in a different country so the thing is is that one thing here is we don't have alcohol in grocery stores Oh, really? So, you know, you you all do there where you can go into a grocery store for a long time. We still have to go into liquor stores or whatever. Um, So, you know, it's just like it's absolutely culture is just inundated with it. And I think the great thing about the book, too, and then I kind of want to ask you the next question. But the thing is, the great thing about the book as well is that you make the point like I sobered up when I was 21. I'm now 61. So the thing is, is that, you know, you also make the point, like I had, an, I had, I don't like to refer to them as old timers. I call them long timers. We had this fellow and he used to just make me sick in the beginning. But, you know, I laugh now because it's true. He says, just because you buy the ticket doesn't mean you have to go to the end of the line. Yeah. And you know what? That's what the book says as well. It tells people that, you know, you can, if you detect there's a problem, if you feel that, you know, you can figure out that I'm drinking before noon, I, all these little rules and guidebook we set up for ourselves, if we're crossing our own boundaries with it, it's okay to stop and save yourself, you know, from, from the decline. And like you said, you know, life can be so much different. And, you know, so it does give people, hey, you know what, this is problematic enough for me right now. Um, This is a self-proclaimed disease. The thing is, we can call it when we call it and we get to call it what your book says is you get to call it earlier. Mm -hmm. And you get to save yourself a lot more grief and the people around you. Because let's face it, when any of us enter into recovery, it's not only a gift for us, it's a gift for our entire family. Oh, God, absolutely. Everybody benefits from recovery. So I don't think there's many books where it states that either, that, hey, you know, you don't you don't have to ride to the end of the line. You don't have to ride to Skid Row. No, no, you do not. Absolutely. So, you know, that is really, really a great message. And so the other thing I want to ask you a little bit about is, um the second question I always cover is 
So you've been sober 32 years, you've been married 35, you've got your family, children, grandchild. So you've got a successful career, you now have a new book coming out. Um, Have you written six books? Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. I used to write fiction. (laughs) Oh, good, good. So the thing is, is that with all of that going on, if I were to just say to you, what are the most important things you think you've earned through being in recovery? What would you say? I would say the respect of my sons. Yeah. That, that really has meant so much because I've seen kids lose respect for their parents. In fact, we're dealing with that with my older sister. And, you know, that respect once lost, Denise, is very hard to get. Never get it back. And I care way more what my children think about me than what the world thinks about me. Great answer. Great answer. And I think that that really is. It's the self-respect, like you say, of your children as a mother, your self-respect and your respect you obviously have from your husband and your family, and more importantly, your own self-respect. Right. So, I mean, that is definitely, I think, what all of us get to earn in our recovery. And uh, so, I mean, you've accomplished a lot. So as we wind up here, can you tell me what are you able to do today? Some of the things you're able to do uh, beyond your wildest dreams that you know would never happen if you hadn't been in recovery? Well, I think... You know, having a full balanced life would have never happened that today I spent the morning at the Metro Park volunteering with the horses. You know, my husband and I, we travel. I can go see my grandbabies in Seattle and I've got we've got another one on the way at the end of December. And, you know, it's just having the freedom to choose what I do, what I want to do and what I don't want to do. And, you know, and I am very, very beyond my wildest dreams. I will tell you when I got, I'll get these messages from people on social media, like a woman who um, on Facebook contacted me and said, I found your book in Tennessee in a library and I'm sober and she's still sober. So we're still in contact and it's been two years now. So that, or, you know, those kinds of things from anonymous people, I don't know who they are. They don't really know who I am. They stumble over the book and it changes their life. I mean, that right there is priceless. And that would never have happened had I not, you know, started my writing journey when I did, wrote all those books, fiction, you know, just kind of things fell where they may. and. You just can't plan it. Exactly. I did not plan really for any of that to happen. So those kinds of things, Denise, I think are beyond my wildest dreams. The little God moments, the gifts of sobriety of helping another when you can touch a complete stranger. I have a really cool story and it's way too long to go into, but a woman in India on my Facebook page, on my page, I have a huge following from people in India. It is bizarre. So this, I do want to share this because she, she contacted me via I am and it's really almost another book, but she was having a terrible time with her her husband, who was an alcoholic, and things are very different in little villages in India. 
And so I pretty much, she reached out to me. She said, I just feel like you can help me. And so through a series of, you know, on Facebook through messenger, just, you know, getting a real feel for her situation and what was going on. And she's with this abusive man. And I just kept encouraging her that you've got to leave that situation. And, you know, maybe you can try this. Can you do this? Cause they don't have the social networks that we do here to help yeah. people in crisis like that or women's shelters or whatever, but to make a very long story short, I think I was able to give her the courage that you can do this and you do not have to live like that. And she took this test and we prayed together and she took this test to be a teacher and she ended up getting the job and she could take her boys with her and they provided housing. And it was her taking this drastic move to get away from this abusive alcoholic that brought him to his knees and four months later, he went to get her sober. I wanted her to wait six. So she didn't listen to everything I said. <laughs> I wanted her to wait at least six months. But they are now together. And this has been now some years. He's still sober. They farm. They have six cows. Because I said, buy a cow. She goes, we have six. I'm like, oh, my God, you're way ahead of, you know what I mean? Because I Wow. I, they're farming cardamom and um, other spices. She teaches. They've had several more children. I mean, that blew my mind. I think that's probably the most mind-blowing thing that's ever happened is how this young woman in a small village in India found me on Facebook, took the leap of faith that I feel like you can help me. And honestly, I'll be honest, I had no idea what I was doing, but I was just, you know, like I said, we pray together, whatever would come to me. I just, you know, could say like, have you tried this? Is there any way you can, um, you know, do you have any papers or magazines that tell you where jobs are available? And it was just bizarre, Denise, but her Well, life and you know what is that's exactly it, right? So you're living your life beyond your wildest dreams. You have ways that you can reach people through the book, through social media, and your, someone is, is benefiting from your experience. And as a result that you're living your life beyond your wildest dreams, you've helped someone else now live life beyond their wildest dreams. That's right. Dreams. That's right. And she's, she, she just messaged me. We still keep in touch. And she, she always calls me ma'am. I keep telling her, Jyoti, you can call me Lisa. Oh, that's funny. She's always like, no, ma'am. And she said, I think of you all the time and how much you help me. And she, you know, it's just amazing. It really well, is. and what hope it gives the listeners to know that, you know, if we, you know, because so often you want to say, what is the benefit in staying in recovery? Because it's not an easy road. It doesn't mean that life is going to change and everything's right. going, we're all going to sing Kumbaya and everything's going to be great. Life carries on, stuff still happens. But with, you know, whatever chosen programs we have, the daily disciplines, we can get through that, then people, we can help other people. And, you know, I just think we have to be committed to living our best life and our life beyond our wildest dreams, and we can pass it on to others. So That's today, I think you've really passed that on. And I really want to thank you for your time, Lisa, and um, you know, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to come on and discuss a bit about the book. And can you just tell people um, how they can reach you on Twitter and also your website? 
Yes, raisingthebottom.com. And I'm on Twitter at L. Boucher Author. Also on Instagram under the same name. And Denise, I can't thank you enough for having me. It's a pleasure talking to you. I mean, we're Twitter friends, but it's great to hear your voice. And Yeah, it's good to get, it was really good to have this time together. And I really, I think we met once at the book group. And um, I just, uh, I really, uh, really appreciate you taking the time and sharing this with everybody today. And also, what is the name of the new book? The new book is going to be Cowgirl and a King, Why Letting Go is the Pathway to Peace. And when will that be out? That will be November 1st, 2022. So we have a little while. We might have to touch base around then. But yeah, it'll be a while. Well, thank you so much, Lisa. You take good care. And thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for having me. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye.